0: This podcast is presented by The Ed Narrative, a place for reflective discourse on education. Visit theednarrative.com to subscribe to this podcast or to our blog. You can also find the podcast on Apple, Google Play, or Stitcher. And as always, please leave a review to help us grow this community of educators. Welcome to Episode 12 of the Ed Narrative Podcast. My name is Darren Ralston, and I am the producer of this podcast. This time we'll be talking with Dr. John Almerode about his work with visible learning and about the book he published back in March with Corwin, uh, Visible Learning for Science. Um, I've known John for a long time. Uh, Our families were in the same neighborhood uh, so we went to the same school. Uh, my brother, Dana, he, uh, he was in the same grade, and they would uh, go and hang out together through middle school and high school. Um, and then later on, I ended up working at Stewart's Draft High School with, uh, with John. So, so we've known each other for a while. Um, it was good to be able to catch up. Um, I was editing the podcast, and I looked at the time for the raw cut, and we had over an hour and a half. So uh, so you look at this, uh, I really ended up cutting about a half hour or more of just chat, uh, but it was good chat. Uh, not something that would maybe help somebody uh, listening to the podcast, but all the same, I had a fun time. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into the podcast. This is uh, Dr. John Almerod. Here we go. Do want to ask you this? And I, if you want it on the on the uh, podcast or not? I was talking to Dana the other day. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, I was like, I was like, I'm going to be talking to John. And then, and then I was like, he was like, Well, tell him I said hi. And I was like, All right, yeah. And then I was like, Wait a minute. I, I just had this memory hit me. I'm like, Did he one time try to play school with you guys yeah. <laughs> in the basement? Those the days. Yeah. <laughs> he Those were the like, days. He's like, Yeah, yeah, he did. And yeah. I was like, I, don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's, I used to, I used the
1: neighborhood, the neighborhood kids. And colleagues and peers, or whatever you want to call them, were uh, the experimental <laughs> trials for everything. Were the experiments for everything I did in life? So mm-hmm. um, I made a run, and as a pr- uh, professional basketball official, what well, that.
0: Oh, I do there. remember you doing. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: and then teaching, and so everything that I've done in my career, mm-hmm. at some point, I experimented on
0: on your dana and sarah and (laughs) carrie and paul and chris anybody who was was in the neighborhood (laughs) yes so if you were yeah i guess i guess i should probably tip my hat to all of yeah i was just i was like i I could have sworn you told me that one day when you came home oh yeah from over there so okay yeah i mean i I, you know you've always been into teaching i know that Mm -hmm. i know that much and, you know, I remember, you know, when I was at work with you over at uh, Draft, any time I saw you, it was high energy. That's exhausting. It is. <laughs> it is. It's hard to keep it up. <laughs> yeah. From 3.30 on, it's yeah. like a zombie. And then it's like, yeah. and power down. Yep. Yeah. 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 So. Um, and I'm an introvert. Heavy, oh, are you? Heavy introvert. Really? Yeah.
1: In fact, the uh, anytime I do the Myers-Briggs, I'm so far on the introversion scale. That's that where I am, too. Yeah. And so it's the the days are it's i'm fine during the day and i typically like last week i was on the road the whole week and so during the presentations and during the work in schools i'm fine Mm
0: -hmm. but when it's
1: done i have no interest in going out i have no interest in doing i i want to go back to the hotel room i want to go home or i want to lock it down yeah Um, so there there are stretches where it gets very taxing yeah i will be (laughs) an absolute zombie right yeah like i won't even probably speak to People on the, I'll just sit down on the airplane, stare to stare, <laughs> <Right. laughs> and then get home and crawl back in your <laughs> coffin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the the introversion yeah. is always yeah. an interesting that's balance. Really, yeah, yeah,
0: I didn't realize that. I never would have guessed that. Heavy, yeah. Let's yeah. Huh. Um, well, let's let's get into the book a little bit. Okay. Um, with, um, I mean, I've, I read through it. I took a lot of notes and. Uh, one of the things I've noticed about the progression on these books and, and doing, you know, I've done book studies on the English one, of course, since, you know, that's mm-hmm. my field. Um, and then I've also done them on math, which, interestingly enough, I think I've picked up more out of the math book than the English one. But mm-hmm. there's also been sort of a progression, I think, as you guys have been producing these where you're able to say, OK, we need to add this thing or that thing. Yeah. Um, but um uh, with with yours I noticed that you had incorporated um, the soft skills pretty heavily mm-hmm. in the beginning um, in regard to science which was something I hadn't really anticipated being in there um, what um, what role I mean you say it in here but like can you uh, sort of expand on the soft skills piece for for science and how it fits into the to the way someone would teach it?
1: Yeah um, and I, with the the idea of soft skills, um, and the reason it was addressed in the book, um, was the need for the collaborative work um, and the the interaction with colleagues. Because as the, the Earth is flat approach mm-hmm. in, in the sciences, in particular, if we're going to address global problems, if we're going to address um, problems in in societies and the and the communities um, much larger than say. A science lab at a major university it's going right. to require a level of interaction and social interaction and cooperation and collaboration and so in the sciences in particular those soft skills often get overlooked um, and it doesn't help us that there are stereotypes out there about scientists um, although one of my favorite shows is the Big Bang Theory uh-huh. um, they in some ways push that stereotype forward that if you're going to be a successful scientist then you are going to be void of social skills,
0: and, and you can only yeah 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 just can't relate to people. That's yeah. right, and
1: you can only hope that you happen to live across the hall from the hot chick,
0: right? Yeah. And so yeah. that reality
1: kind of plays into the stereotype that scientists don't have to have those social skills. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say some of the stereotype we bring on ourselves because you can lock yourself in a lab and work in your little circle and have limited social interaction. Mm -hmm. But that's not just isolated to science. On the flip side, to go back to the original answer to the question, as we become a more global society, not just in how we interact with each other through social media, through technology, um, through travel. I mean, I just read on on the Internet the other day that, so it must be true. Of course. That um, Singapore Air is about to put in the longest flight, um, nonstop flight, Uh, in the world Uh, it was Qatar air that had theirs Mm -hmm. but now apparently Singapore is going to fly and the flight is 19 hours long and so you can get anywhere you need to get in a day right right? so this idea then is also related to the problems we tackle in science. Mm -hmm. As we look at the human genome, as we solve um, climate change challenges, as we deal with fallout from natural disasters, as we deal with superbugs. I noticed there's an Ebola outbreak now that has surfaced. That just happened
0: Um, like today or yesterday in the news.
1: Yeah. And so it requires a level of collaboration that we are not used to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the soft skills are part of it. The other part of it, it has to do with the teaching and learning that's the focus of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, we have got to move past this myth that if I know a lot about science, if I know a lot about mathematics, if I know a lot about um, Shakespeare, that then I am automatically qualified to teach. Right. And in fact, that is absolutely not true. Um, the data has indicated the opposite. Um, and those that do know a lot about it who are good teachers, there's something they do that's different and some of it has to do with those interpersonal skills and those soft skills, their ability to form um, productive relationships with learners, their ability to see learning through the eyes of their students, their ability to interact with learners in a way that also forces them or encourages them to interact with the content that promotes the learning. Right. And so it's that combination of how we operate in today's world, plus the content of science and the goal of science that leads to a necessity to focus on their soft skills.
0: Right, yeah. Well, I, I mean, especially if you're working in an area like... And for me, you know, if I was to go and follow the path of literature or whatever, I mean, I might get into some little snippy arguments if I'm called something very esoteric. Mm-hmm. But with, you know, like with what I'm hearing, you you know, kind of bringing up those those major issues and we got people working on those things... To be able to come at it from a place where you might have completely divergent beliefs around the thing, but you still have the task to complete, right. I think I think that's that's a good way of, of framing that. I hadn't quite anticipated that being the response, but it makes sense mm-hmm. to me. Um, the
1: other, and if I may, ju- the other part. This came up the other day. A colleague of mine mentioned the rate at which information is doubling in our world yeah um, has picked it up seems like it's beyond
0: exponential. Yeah. And so
1: the other part has to do with both science and teaching and learning. Because there's so much information out there, when a problem falls in my lap, in your lap, in, in our colleagues laps, to do it justice in terms of the literature review and finding out about the problem and, and studying up on it so that you can propose a reasonable, realistic and relevant solution. Mm-hmm. requires you to dig through all that information as it's doubling while you're digging. right? And so the collaboration is essential. I need to be able to say, oh, wait, I know someone in New Zealand that is looking at this aspect of it. I, I need to call him or her. I know someone in Singapore that is looking at it from this angle. I need to talk to him or her and then have the soft skills to navigate that and then communicate that to the world so that you're producing that scientific literacy in a way that is welcoming and inviting to the science citizen versus the Mm -hmm. science researcher.
0: Right, right.
1: And I don't know how else you would do it. There are things that come across my desk that I'd push aside because I recognize in order to even read up enough to address that question legitimately would take a career. And someone else has devoted their career to it. Somebody already has one of those careers. So let's go find them and say, here,
0: you want this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things, too, with the technology we have. Now you can actually find them pretty easily. Yes. (laughs) So there's that added benefit. And they're nice humans. Most people are nice
1: human beings, with some exceptions. Right. (laughs) With some exceptions, yeah.
0: What would be the difference between soft skills in science education and leadership skills in science education?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that I compare it to is um, in the cognitive sciences right. that looks at um, general expertise mm-hmm. and then content-specific or context-specific expertise. Mm-hmm. And so soft skills are good for everybody. Right? You yeah. need soft skills to function um, at, at Walmart <laughs> when there are two lanes open mm-hmm. and they're backed up to the electronics section, and you need soft skills to operate in the classroom, in the science lab. Mm-hmm. But then there are those very specific soft skills or those contextualized soft skills that provide you with a specialized skill set to operate in a classroom with adolescents, or a lab in which you have postdocs and graduate assistants and the list is long. So I would say it's a matter of um, specializing or a specialized okay. view of soft skills.
0: So just like taking a look at the ones that are going to be more high yield when it comes to... Being able to guide a project or a or a process, absolutely. Even though those things still are relevant in just a general collaboration, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. Uh-huh.
1: Especially when you're around others that have similar expertise to the person who's leading them, mm-hmm. and that's very different than navigating mm-hmm. um, the checkout line at Walmart, where the expertise of the people in the aisle is irrelevant. It's right. navigating the context of the situation and recognizing that it's very different than if I'm sitting in a room full of scientists or biology teachers or science teachers where our level of expertise is very similar. What differentiates us is the ability to then get the group moving for right. a common cause, Yeah, and it's yeah. that specialization. Yeah,
0: now That's a different set of leadership skills because right. <laughs> you know, there's there's often a lot of questioning of, of this or that thing that you're suggesting, yep. and it becomes a little bit slower.
1: <laughs> and science and math people can be uh, a tough crowd. We we are a tough crowd. As a member of that crowd, I can tell you we're yeah. a tough bunch.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> why? What, what? How so?
1: I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the... the it, it, I mean, I have some theories. I don't have any data to back them up. I think some of it's the elitism that right. comes with science and mathematics. I think some of it is the defensiveness because mm-hmm. they think we're all nerds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of it is just, um, I think, the belief in the value of what we provide. And so it's that... Mentality of of protecting what is the essence of mathematics and the okay. essence of science, yeah. and you see some of this in, in the English. Canonicity world. is yeah.
0: a huge issue, and it's the same thing. Oh, I know that's correct. about Beowulf. That, <laughs> I know right. about As You Like It. Yeah. <laughs> don't question uh, me. The <laughs> most upset I've ever
1: the most upset I've ever made a, a room full of English teachers was when I said I don't know why we get so hung up on Hamlet. Just watch The Lion King. And I said it in jo- in a, in a, in right, a joking, in at, and it was did to go well because how dare I substitute
0: Shakespeare <laughs> right. for, for a Disney movie? First you hear crickets <laughs> and then you hear the pitchforks rattle. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I was ever invited back. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it, but the thing is, is that there is appropriation of Shakespeare all over. It's it doesn't matter if it's Disney or if it's like some you know high art version of. <laughs> are stealing from Shakespeare to this day it's not yeah anyway we could talk about that forever too yeah that's right <laughs> one of the other things in here that I found interesting and this kind of does get back to the English uh, stuff because um I've been looking into the idea of stamina with um with reading like um I can't remember if it's if it's Penny Kittle or if it's um I can't remember. It's been a while since I read up on it. Anyways, the idea of getting kids to sort of build up that endurance mm-hmm. to be able to read longer and longer times, and you also were referencing the idea of stamina in in the book, and I wanted to kind of get a feel for what stamina looks like and what building stamina looks like a little bit. Yeah, like you know, even if it's just sort of like a you know, a bare bones sort of philosophical kernel to start from.
1: Absolutely. And so, you know, I'm fortunate enough to to be able to collaborate with some awesome colleagues. And uh, Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry Mm -hmm. um, were the first to start to wrestle with this idea of task design. Okay. And so I guess to make an umbrella statement and then get back to stamina, the whole premise behind visible learning uh, for science is that the most successful um, and effective teachers are those that see learning through the eyes of their students. They can put themselves in their Mm -hmm. learner's shoes, or they remember what it was like to be 12 and being exposed to the cell theory for the first time, or they understand what it was like, um, or remember what it was like to be 16 and interacting with your first free body diagram. And Mm -hmm. so they don't let their expertise and their content blind them for what it was like to be a learner. Right. And then in the same vein, they know that their goal is to try to promote assessment-capable, visible learners or learners that, that see themselves as their own teachers mm-hmm. that can take ownership and control of their learning progress, making very clear decisions about how to proceed forward in their learning. And so with that I mean, comes the, the the pressure, I guess, or the focus on the teacher in the type of tasks and the type of classroom environment that's provided to those learners to push that forward, to push that agenda forward. And so when we look at task design, um, one of the most important things we do as teachers is we design learning experiences with learning tasks, and what do those learning tasks need to have in them or as part of their features to promote the learning we're looking for? And one of the big words that comes up in education all the time, we overuse this word so much is rigor. Oh yeah, and yeah. and well, I'm rigorous. And I'm rigorous. We We, even was, uh,
0: we had John Antonetti come out to Albemarle yeah. one time, and he's like, "Rigors for dead people." <laughs> That's <right. laughs> just so straight. You're flat as a board. I was like, oh, you know, I kind of like. That. Yeah, and he is a fan. So,
1: by the way, he's a colleague and a friend of mine, and his approach is right on the money. So, one of the yeah, things that good. Doug right. and Nancy mm-hmm. tried to push forward, and then we completely um, grasped and and incorporated in this book is the idea of what does rigor mean. And we needed a new definition because the idea of rigor is not a bad one. You you need rigorous tasks to learn. You just
0: need to understand what you mean when you say it or you're looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: And so that's where the idea of complexity and difficulty Mm -hmm. comes into play. And Mm -hmm. so uh, the way we present it – and, and again, Doug and Nancy are the ones that started this ball rolling. Is mm-hmm. that rigor is is a combination of difficulty and complexity, and then with that comes different tasks: right. high difficulty, low complexity; high complexity, low difficulty; low low, and then high high. Right. And so you have this quadrant approach, and it means that no single task is necessarily bad or shouldn't be valued. But there should be a variety uh, of tasks that cover the rigor spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, stamina is a task that is high difficulty but low complexity. Right.
0: So it's and more like repetition and um, stuff like that. Is that what you're saying? So
1: repetition would be low difficulty, low complexity, okay, and it's very right. good for yeah. building fluency. Right. Um, you want learners to be fluent. Right. They need to be fluent in terminology. Uh, they need to be fluent in some procedures. Uh, they need to be fluent in their conceptual understanding of, say, um, an inference or extrapolation or comparing and contrasting. Stamina is the idea that um, I need to be able to persevere through things that don't resolve quickly. Um, Writing a lab report is gonna require stamina. Mm -hmm. The actual lab report writing isn't complex. Now, doing the actual lab, analyzing the results, engaging in the calculations, complex, Mm -hmm. different variables. But when you're presenting this information, writing the lab report requires me as a learner to have stamina. I right. can't write one or two sentences and say that's it. Right. I've got to think about how I'm explaining my thinking, how I'm going to present that thinking. Is it clear to the reader? And then I'm going to have to make sure I dr- – um, dr- not drag it out, but um, <laughs> right, extend yeah. it out enough to where someone reading it can follow along. That it's,
0: um, that it's complete. Correct. Yeah.
1: And that's stamina. Um, in language arts, in English language arts, and I, I, again, this is not always a popular response, but writing a research paper, mm-hmm. stamina. Mm -hmm. The research process is not very complex. Now, you may find yourself reading something, just like in science. You may Mm -hmm. find yourself in a lab where all of a sudden the variables get mixed up and you have complexity. Mm -hmm. But the actual writing of the paper is stamina. So one of the things we talk about in science is helping learners build that stamina to stay with a problem right, and push through,
0: see it through and then
1: see it through in a way that allows you to then use those soft skills to communicate it to the
0: world around you. Right. Well, I know that doing tasks like that, and, and I've had, you know, in my classroom when we've done things that require some stamina, it ends up making them better able to communicate verbally because they, they've done all of the hard thinking on paper and then they can be like, oh, yeah, well, I right. know this, and this, that, that's what I found out.
1: It's and so it leads to fluency. It does, Because yeah. once I push through and have stamina, it often requires me to move into a different quadrant where I have high complexity, low difficulty, which is strategic thinking.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. now I have to strategically yeah. think about how this um, affected my learning progression. And then the combination of those two things makes me fluent in the very thing that I just messed with, in thing meaning concepts, ideas. And so I, I, I get some fluency out of it. Um, writing a book, for example, requires stamina. Yes. Preparing for the book requires some struggle. How do you mm-hmm. want to put these ideas together? And then as you write it, you do strategic thinking, but then when you're done writing it, there are certain ideas that you have developed fluency in because you've just spent the last year writing about right. it. Right, and, and so you've had
0: to read over it. You've absolutely. had to check the page numbers and yep. do, all the, yeah, do all the stuff.
1: And so there's no yeah. single area... Of, the, of that quadrant, the complexity-difficulty uh, divide, that is better than the others. Mm-hmm. It's just you can't live in one of them. We can't live in a science classroom where everything's fluency. Memorize the parts of a flower. Memorize these definitions. Memorize these symbols. That's too much fluency, and so you don't get the strategic thinking mm-hmm. or the stamina needed for a learner to engage in science outside the classroom. Well,
0: and that's one of the other things that you bring up. A lot in here is using the right strategy for the right time for the right purpose, you know, yeah. in, in order to make sure that you're you're able to round out that rigor uh, yep. piece. I like that um, that you <laughs> clarified that because I wasn't quite sure exactly to what extent stamina was meant
1: and, and you know John, John sapphire's is another um, researcher that that right. is and he is a re- he wrote the book The Skillful Teacher um, and he puts it a different way he describes it as effective teaching um, involves areas of performance the non-negotiables right um, John Hattie refers to them as the high effect size high impact strategies yeah. um, a repertoire of ways of doing it so classroom discussion is a high impact strategy yeah uh, the other John and the skillful teacher would call it uh, an area of performance, promoting dialogue. But you need to have a repertoire of ways of doing this. Mm-hmm. And then the third characteristic is the matching. In other words, you have to not only have an area of performance, i.e., promoting classroom discussion, and not just a bag of tricks, but the matching is the most important part. Mm-hmm. Matching the bag, the trick from the bag, with the right mm-hmm. condition in the classroom. John Hattie would argue it's the Kenny Rogers approach. Yeah, You've got to know which strategy you use at what time for the right student, for the right content, before it's going to have the impact that the research says it does. Yeah. Um, and Doug and Nancy refer to it as precision planning yeah. and precision teaching.
0: Kenny Rogers, the gambler. Isn't that great? <laughs> okay. I mean, and the fact that fact When you brought that, that up, <laughs> when I saw you back, I think it was October, <laughs> and you pulled that up, I was like, oh my God. Isn't that great? <laughs> it's true. Yep. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, Looking in uh, at prior knowledge, and you had basically stated that it, it is equal to vocabulary knowledge, right? In in regard to science, I mean, I I can that resonates with me as as language arts mm-hmm. teaching, you know. But right, but um, you know, I you know, and I did when I was doing my masters in uh, curriculum and instruction for um, for English, that was my whole thing was vocab and. And um, concepts and things like that you know Um, so one of the things that I landed on was there's this study that uh, this anthropologist Bob Levy did in Tahiti and it's it's about hypocognition is what he calls it where you just don't have a word for a concept but you still experience the concept Mm -hmm. right and um, I, I was just thinking about how that functions in working with science like this thing is happening or this thing occurs but what is it how do I talk about it yeah Um, so when you look at the vocab knowledge as prior knowledge for science is like how would you put the breakdown is it like um, like if you were to say that the, the you know majority of the prior knowledge would need to be vocab or is it um, that, you know, maybe it's an even split with something else? Like, what, what constitutes uh, pretty yeah. decent prior knowledge? Um,
1: and, and I'm not sure there's a way to quantify it. Um, I would have to look to see what the, what right, the research is mm-hmm. on. I would say equivalence is a strong word. Um, so there is prior knowledge that isn't just vocab. Right. Um, but in the world that we operate in, the, the terminology, the vocab, the language we use um, is, is paramount. Right. In science, what you what I think you see in science, and I say I think, what happens in science that may not happen in some of the other disciplines is that these learners are experiencing the world before they ever come in your classroom. Mm-hmm. The problem is, as you just described in Levy's study, they may not have the words for it. So m- most students, with some exceptions, have experienced certain scientific phenomenon like the sun coming up, the sun going down. Going down. And so that's right. Yeah. And so the sun going up and the sun going down, they come they're coming in with prior knowledge. They Mm -hmm. see the sun come up and they see it go down. And so they have a certain prior knowledge about, oh, well the sun goes from this side to that side. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) that's not how that really works, but that's prior knowledge. And so Mm -hmm. then we have to slap some labels on it revolution, rotation, the solar system, mm-hmm. and give them the language to help them make heads or tails out of a phenomenon that they've had experience with ever since they could um, could lay down long-term yeah. memories. And so when we talk about prior knowledge and vocabulary, um, it's the idea that using phenomenon and concepts that students have likely experienced and then helping them build the vocabulary to communicate about that particular phenomenon is is very important. And so in some cases we see learners, uh, for example, English language learners or students who are learning English as a second language, when they experience the concept in their native language, bang, they hit it out of the park. But because we're force-feeding it in English – they're uneasy not because of the concept, but because of the vocabulary that we're right. throwing at them. And how do we mitigate that? And or with how do we the address assessments that? too. That's right.
0: I mean that that we're right now in the thick of SOLs, yeah. right? And I mean that's one of the things that you know I've I've had some work with ESOL teachers where we're like, how can we try to get the language? In it? Absolutely. I mean it's an uphill battle, and they're all coming in from different places in in their ability too.
1: And there's some really good research on on, on vocabulary instruction. Mm-hmm. And so I think the big thing to keep in mind with vocab instruction is it's not about flashcards. It's not about writing definitions. Mm-hmm. It's the conceptual understanding of the phenomenon or of the thing and then labeling it after the experience. We want them to experience... Um, the human impact on the environment and competition and carrying capacity. One of the examples in the book, right? Yeah. Rather than give them copious notes about carrying capacity, producers, consumers, um, bioaccumulation. Those are those are major concepts. But what we can do is offer them a challenging task, a learning experience that gives them the concept, and then say, now we're going to label
0: it. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas in most cases we reverse the, it. Or you're taking and trying to teach a concept with other concepts that they haven't even. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Because yep. the, the words. Right. And, and so it's like, well, what does that one mean? What does that one mean? Until you get 10 deep into the dictionary and you've forgotten what. Right. The initial.
1: And we can. And the thing that always causes me to bristle, and I don't bristle at much anymore. Um, but one of the things I bristle at is that we cannot then pawn that off on the learners.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's
1: what kills me. Is right. when They say well, they yeah, just don't get it. That's it. Yeah. Or, well, last year in fourth grade, they should have learned this term. Mm-hmm. My response is always this, and I'll try to keep it tempered on, on, on this podcast because I can get a little riled up over <laughs> it. There's only one person in the classroom paid to be there. And I think we have a choice. I can either continue to complain because the seventh grade life science teacher didn't do what I thought she should have done to get my learners ready for mm-hmm. biology, or... I can make my life easier and teach it to them.
0: Right, yeah. No. So that's
1: that's my two cents worth on that, and I, and that's not in there because it would have offended everybody, but typically when you give me a microphone, that's going to come out. No, I've heard you say that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's time but, to, I mean, yep, I, I, I don't disagree yeah. with it, you know? <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you? I mean, that's what you're there for. Yeah. So um, anything else on, on, you know, the role of, like, vocab prior knowledge that you wanted to hit because i just want to make sure that if we didn't like it
1: yeah i would say the other thing to point out is n- let's not make the assumption and i was not very good at this and when i was in the classroom we can't make the assumption that it was that it's not there
0: right in other words just it because be you there. aren't it's not actively there correct they're not spitting it out that or they okay. just need the label and right. so when,
1: when we ask the students, well, who can tell me what, what photosynthesis is? And no one says a word. Yeah. We can't assume they know nothing about photosynthesis. It, they're not blank slates. Instead, right. we have to say, wait a second, let me break that down. Mm-hmm. Who can tell me something about how plants live and survive? Right. And all of a sudden, you get these ideas, and you're like, right. guys, gals, this is photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. Oh, we didn't know that was the word, and you just yep. saved yourself a week of instruction yep. by being methodical about how you ask the question. Mm-hmm. And that's the role of content task analysis or task analysis in the visible learning research that has such a high effect size. Mm-hmm. Don't ask them about this big concept. Break it down yeah. into smaller questions and see if they can pull it together and then you're off and running.
0: Yeah, cobble it together from yep. the evidence. Yeah. Absolutely. Now that I used to do that when I had, um, we used Freyer models mm-hmm. for, our, for our vocab when I was doing um, collab English. And it, it tended to be pretty fun, actually. Yeah. You know, we would do a little sketch, the you know, all the stuff, and have them come up with alternative concepts in any anyway, so. And they can do it. They can. They they did. And the assumption
1: yeah. that they can't is offensive to learners.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and it just shuts them down. Yep. You know, I mean, if if you got somebody up front that is acting as though you're never gonna get it, well. Why should you? Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, that kind of leads directly into another piece about uh, grades and feedback. I remember you talking about it some when I was at the um, at the uh, session you did in October. Mm-hmm. But um, I feel like that's something that, like, right now, this is, and I don't know where you would fall on this, but we, I, I was just. Um, at a meeting where they're talking about doing standard-based grading mm-hmm. rather than uh, the A, B, C, D, F, right? Um, and so they're trying to switch it up on how they do the grading. Um, but I know that you have sort of a clear-cut you know, way of conceptualizing the two, grades versus feedback, because they aren't necessarily the same. <laughs> Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I. you t- over here just <laughs> like. know yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah.
1: So this is a characteristic of. Of. Of me I think. And that is. There's so many gray areas in education. Mm-hmm. Um, and what has happened over the years. And I'll answer your question. I promise. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are so many gray areas in education. That what has happened over the years. Is that politicians. Um, policy makers, parents, stakeholders outside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. So this comment is directed towards teachers. Mm -hmm. People outside of the classroom are using the gray areas to manipulate what happens inside the classroom. That's totally true. And so one of the things I try to make sure that I do, anytime I interact with the teachers, I say, okay, yeah, it could be gray, but let me show you a way to think about it that cuts that grayness out. Mm -hmm. Because I think... The gray areas when they're used to play whack-a-mole with our teachers that gets dangerous and so Mm -hmm. the reason that i do come down and and doug and nancy and john and i have this conversation the reason often is is that i think you have to say okay try this not this Mm -hmm. and then go see if it works then if it doesn't work adjust with grades and feedback that's one of the reasons that that i think we do come down on the this is this this is that Um, and it's actually based on research and so grades are not horrible. You, you gotta have some level of, this is where you are. Mm-hmm. This is your grade. The problem is, with a grade, the learner, in order for it to be a useful grade, must be able to tell you what the grade means. Right. Now this is really important. Mm-hmm. Grades are not the enemy. The problem is, learners don't know what the grades mean or what's behind them so that they can use them to push learning forward. Mm-hmm. So, how do you address that issue? Hang on. Set grades aside for a minute and focus on feedback. So what makes something effective feedback is its ability to answer three very important questions. So anytime you deliver feedback to a learner, if you want it to help the learner and help you as the teacher, it has to answer three questions. It has to, number one, remind the learner of where they're going. It has to remind them. Now remember, here's
0: the target you're aiming for. Mm -hmm. This task was to aim you at this target. So is this like the learning uh, intentions and things that you... That's correct, okay. yep. Right. So
1: w- where am I going? It's a reminder of where am I going. The second question it must answer is, how am I going? Mm-hmm. Specific, constructive, and timely information about the gap between where I want my learner to be and where that learner is currently. That's the how. Okay. Your thesis statement doesn't align with your supporting details. Your research paper doesn't explain um, how you calculated error. Um, Your um, description of photosynthesis is missing the part about whatever. And so you're telling the learner, this is what you're doing, but this is what needs to be worked on. Mm -hmm. Um, Your free body diagram is missing the force due to gravity. Um, The electrons don't add up in your balancing of the equation. So you're Mm -hmm. giving that learner very specific and constructive information about the gap in their learning. And so that information is actionable. Is that yes. correct? Absolutely. Okay. it has to. It All can't right. be great job, needs more work, right. try again, huh? do over. I mean, that kind of <laughs> yeah. stuff is useless, right? Mm-hmm. You might as well not even grade it or just going C minus. You missed mm-hmm. number two. Right. The third question is the big one, and this is the one that we often miss. The third question that feedback has to answer is where do I go next? And it's our job as the teacher to scaffold students in planning their next steps because eventually, if we do this very well, then they will plan their own next steps after they hear from question number two. Right, yeah. yeah. And so that doesn't require a grade. That requires me to communicate with learners. Now, if you're listening to the podcast and you're probably sitting across the table doing this, your first reaction is, I teach 30 kids and I have five blocks a day. You want me to do that for 150 kids? Mm-hmm. No. Feedback comes from three main sources. Teacher, students, and self. Self. Early on, yes. As a teacher, you're going to have to give a lot of feedback and spend a lot of time on the front end. But once a system is in place in your classroom where feedback is actually valued more than anything else, Mm -hmm. then students start to adopt that behavior. They start to adopt that thinking. They start to assimilate that approach and mindset into their own work. And so then I can sit next to my buddy at my lab bench and give him feedback or give right. her feedback. because well, it becomes watched it happen. part of
0: the classroom culture. Absolutely. And I mean that's something that, you know, usually the you know, the first couple weeks, months, whatever of, of a class, it's strum and drum, you know. You got it's it. Like, ah. But then everybody everybody starts to level off and they know the the SOPs, you know? You got it. And it no that makes and, sense. and then when you
1: move to the next level, that's when you have this the goal or the, I'm sorry, the self directed learners, and you mm-hmm. have learners giving themselves feedback. They look at something and go, wow. Something's not right with my electrons here. Let me see if I can figure this out. And so early on, yeah, of course, you're going to give a lot of feedback. Mm -hmm. But as time progresses, it's what Doug and Nancy would refer to as gradual release of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so you find that you actually are doing less but getting more of an impact because your learners are seeing themselves as their own teachers. Now, if you want to slap a grade on it, that's fine. As long as a learner can say, I got a C today on this assignment. Because I didn't balance my electrons, and I'm going to make these adjustments, and I'm resubmitting it tomorrow. Now, all of a sudden, the C means something, and right. so the C isn't the enemy anymore. Mm-hmm. But if you get a C, and a kid says, "I got a C on that," and they raise their hand and they say, "Is this going in the grade book?" You've missed the point. Right. Your your classroom's missing feedback because they've closed the book on something that we probably should
0: have kept going. So, are you looking at, like you said, I'm going to resubmit it? Are you talking about um, like the mastery approach? Yes.
1: Yep. Okay. I've, and mastery learning has an effect size of .57, mm-hmm. which is um, more than one year's worth of growth. It's right. a year and a half right. worth of, grow, of growth.
0: And point .4 is the sort of cutoff. That's correct. Right. That's
1: one year's. Well, and when we say cutoff, it's They're equivalent cu- to. threshold, yes, is that a better word? For one year's worth of growth. Yeah. 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 And so mastery learning, I think, is absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. And this is controversial, but I'll say it. If that student <laughs> resubmits it tomorrow mm-hmm. and gets it all correct. This garbage of, well, I only give them 50% of their points back, that's garbage. Mm -hmm. That's absolute garbage, and and, and we would never allow that to happen to us. You know, Mr. Mr. Ralston, um, I did your um, evaluation last week, Mm -hmm. and um, rather than fours, you got a two on this and a three on this. And so I'm going to come back in two weeks and do another classroom observation. But you're only going to be able to get 50% of these up. The others are just going to have to stay. You as a classroom teacher would have what? Fi- Exactly. you got to be kidding me. Yeah. But we, but we do it to a 7-year-old. Right, right. How is it appropriate to do to a 7-year-old and not to a 27-year-old?
0: What do you think... Th- I mean, what do you think the logic is behind that? I mean, like, I've, that's something where... I mean, it's it's sort of... You know, I hate to say it, it seems like it's industry standard, right? It is. But there? it's it's also... You know, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, where, when did that start? What is it? I mean, is it, a, it, is it just the straight desire for pacing? Is it, you know, I mean, everybody talks about the factory model. Yep. You know, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, I, I, think, it, it's, it's a, it's, I think it's reflective of a value system that is maybe not as functional. Is that correct? And, I, it, you, and we can't blame this on pacing or standards. Right. Because it predates that. Right. No, it does. I mean, it, that, I, mean that's, I didn't go it, through standards based learning nope. when I was in school, and that was. It was either no, or you can do it for half I think it's our
1: desire to. And again, this is a sociological conversation of mm-hmm. which I am not an educational sociologist, but it, I think it goes into the um, factory model, leftover remnants of the factory model, mm-hmm. that I have to have a way to compare you with the person sitting in the, in the desk next to you mm-hmm. for lots of reasons. Number one you're all on the same roster and number mm-hmm. two if I see your mama at church and I see his mama at church <laughs> right. and they talk mm-hmm. I'm not equipped to respond my my answer is quit comparing them to each other
0: mm-hmm.
1: and let's start preparing teachers in their teacher programs mm-hmm. to address that right right. I mean the other thing could be yeah I could go on this for hours because then you say great well then um, your son cannot wear that blue shirt tomorrow well why because no one else has a blue shirt, and since you want me to treat them the same in mathematics, I'm going to treat them the same in their outfits. No more blue shirts tomorrow. But that's his favorite color. Oh, well. (laughs) In other words, our our logic breaks down. He'll have to get used to pink.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, our logic breaks down. Yeah.
1: And and so I just think it's it's one of those things that's left over, and it's probably non-intentional. It's Mm -hmm. not intentional, and it's probably subconscious. I think it's left over from the factory model.
0: And, well, I mean, also there is a, you know, there was i think a different mindset at least in the secondary part of it mm-hmm. where you've got this sort of attrition you know you know oh he didn't make it so you're out see you yeah. and oh you're not gonna make it see you how oh, you guys you stayed in and you did what you were supposed to yep. right so uh, yeah anyway I mean, maybe that's a way to start getting at it and we brag but. about it at the universities. Oh, yeah. oh, the gatekeeper stuff. Right? Oh, this yeah. uh, And, for, and, I, and yeah. let,
1: me, let me qualify this by saying I had an awesome experience as an undergrad. And so the example I'm using is because it is not what happened to me. But I'm going to...
0: You're going to throw it out. Um,
1: okay. You know, organic chemistry. Mm-hmm. Well, only 30% of the students make it through organic chemistry. That means you are terrible at teaching. <laughs> you had an entire semester mm-hmm. and 70% of your kids did not learn in organic chemistry. That doesn't make your class rigorous. That makes you awful. Mm-hmm. You're a terrible teacher.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, my goodness, we have better success rate treating certain cancers than you do teaching organic chemistry, and you cannot equate the
0: two. Yeah, oh, it just burns me up. No. I get well, all. I mean, up. I think it feels to me too that like what's happening in the public schools and the and mm-hmm. the, you know the the pre college education world, it, it's changing. Mm-hmm. But it feels like there's a lot of foot dragging up at the other Oh it's end.
1: slow. Change is slow yeah. anyway.
0: Yeah, it is it's been for Unless you all come levels, in and rip but. off
1: the band-aid. You <laughs> know, and, and that's happened in right. international politics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not
0: sure that would work so well in education. Right but yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the other thing I was thinking in regard to the grading, right, mm-hmm. is um, you know, you um you went in on how to calculate you know the effect size for your own class and also for individual students and things like that would that be something that would function for a grading purpose at all or is that more just instructive for the teacher like i was curious about that i was looking at i'm like well if we're looking at a growth model is this something that would be, cons- I don't
1: know, what do, what do you think? Yeah, and, let's, and so again, let me umbrella statement and then answer your question. Okay. So the umbrella statement would be this. In order to give effective feedback mm-hmm. um, and feedback that allows the learner to recognize where they are, where they're going, and what they have to do next to get there, we as teachers have to do some work on the front end. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons why a significant portion of the book is devoted to a concept known as teacher clarity.
0: Yeah. yeah I have yeah. to know
1: what it is I want my students to learn, and here's the big one and I have to know what success looks like before I walk in the door.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I have to, as the teacher knows, this is success. Success for you as a teacher
0: or success for the students?
1: Always them. Always them. Always them, because success for you as a teacher is, do they get there or not? get it, yeah. And so I have to know, if I want my students to learn about, um, uh, let's (laughs) see, Um, today we're learning about density and its relationship to the mass and the volume of a substance, Mm -hmm. or how mass and volume of a substance relate to the density of the, uh, of an object.
0: Right.
1: Success is then I have to say, okay, so what does it mean for learners to get this? And so I have to, before I walk in the door in the planning part of this, I have to say, okay, so a student who has mastered this or a student who gets this, what are they able to do at the end of the block mm-hmm. that they couldn't do before? Right. Those are your success criteria. I can, uh, find the mass of a substance I can find the volume of a substance I can convert between different units of mass and volume for different mm-hmm. substances I can plot mass and volume of a substance I can so you've got all these success criteria then that dictates what kind of learning experiences you offer them and what you're looking for Right. that's your look for list mm-hmm. but then I also need to make that visible to the student so when you say okay what are you learning today oh we're learning about density well how do you know you've got it they know Oh, well, I can do this, 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 and this. So mm-hmm. they know it. Now we have the framework in place for effective feedback because then all of my feedback should be aimed at getting them to do the very things that right. I have listed like in the success criteria. The, the whole, yeah. So then when you use something like effect size or you use something like a rubric, the rubric and the effect size should focus on this. how many, What could you do before the lesson? What can you do now? Mm-hmm. And what kind of growth did I see?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so with that growth, then I can say, well, these 16 kids made significant gains in their learning growth based on pre- and post-assessment. And it doesn't have to be formal. Right. It doesn't have to be a multiple choice at the beginning and a multiple choice at the end. It can be student conversations, interviews, something that gives me insight into where they are that I can chart. Mm-hmm. Then there's the, there are these five over here that didn't make that growth. So I, here we go, watch the language here. So I need to do something different with them tomorrow. Okay. Versus, well, that kid's poor, that one has a disability, that one over there doesn't speak English, so they're just not going to get it. Wrong answer. It needs to be, what I did today didn't work for them, mm-hmm. so then I need to do something different. Because, again, I'm the only one that's in the room that's paid to be there. Right, yeah. Right? So if a surgeon does a certain treatment on you, in the operating room and it doesn't work Right. he doesn't walk out and tell your family well mm-hmm. I took out the gallbladder because that's all I know how to do <laughs> um, lo and yeah. behold uh, he had a ruptured aorta and so I'm sorry he was a bad patient yeah no you would go in look at it and say "Up, oh, it's not the gallbladder that didn't fix it Up, oh, it's not the spleen that didn't fix it oop it's not the appendix that didn't fix it oh my gosh it's a ruptured aorta and you would change your medical approach mm-hmm. the same thing applies to a classroom It's what I need to do differently to get to those students. And that's a mind frame and a mindset. And by the way, it is highly predictive of learning. Mm -hmm. A teacher who has that mindset. So then in your grading and the effect size, it depends on what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. The effect size could be an option. Um, A student work analysis could be an option. Um, There are lots of different ways to do it if you're focused on who did and who didn't and what I'm going to do for those who didn't. Okay. And the other thing is, and this is... we're moving in this now this is something we're working on as we speak okay is there a pattern in the type of student that didn't and now we're talking
0: about equity when you say a pattern you mean a a pattern in the classroom or a pattern like overall like if you're looking at different things like i know you know like for example i would said i would talked with uh, bob garrity he was looking at he's he does a lot of work with equity and Mm -hmm. social justice um, he's been he's been doing some stuff with um, culturally responsive yep. teaching, um, and uh, he was he was looking at um, you know there's uh, a huge break between like IEP students and of course you know students of colors uh, color and uh, also your ESOL right that 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 tend to be problematic when it comes to the way that discipline is moved mm-hmm. out you not, got it you know, I'm not necessarily talking about instruction of course it ties into instruction right. because you can't teach them if they're not there but you know so is so that's what you're looking at you're looking at like those bigger sort of themes as well as maybe absolutely okay so
1: it could be teacher specific or mm-hmm. cl- or, or school specific is there mm-hmm. a pattern in within students who are not making the same gains as others right why is it that none of the females are making gains in physics? Mm-hmm. Now, these are hypotheticals. right? Yeah. Um, why is it that none of my students with an IEP are making it an earth science? Mm-hmm. Is, why is it that black males, right? And so those questions you have to ask. Mm-hmm. Now, if there's no pattern, then it just means we got a learning issue or a teaching issue that right. we need there to address. There might
0: be just something endemic to that one got kid. It.
1: But if I right. see a pattern that says, why is it that children who speak Spanish as their native language never do well in my class? That's an equity issue. Yeah, because there's no way speaking yeah. Spanish is a liability in learning science. Right, that's just that's that's absurd. Mm-hmm. And so the other part of this is when you give grades and you give feedback is to look at the patterns to find out who's not getting it and why are they not getting it, mm-hmm. and what should I do differently. Mm-hmm. And I cannot overemphasize that enough. We do yeah. do not blame the child.
0: I mean, we we've just started like. This year we had Zaretta Hammond come out. Too. Yeah, she's fantastic. She is. Yeah, I got to I got to talk with her on on a podcast too, and I mean it was it was really really cool. Um, but she came out for two days, and um, we've got an equity team that started in Albemarle, and we're looking at that exact thing. Yep. You know, um, ways that we could do things like an observation and sort of say, okay, you know, how many positive interactions have occurred, or have you called on, you know the students and have just like the list so that you're doing very pinpointed things that can apply to sort of coaching through that process. Um, but that's still, I mean, it's still very formative. Um, like the
1: student at Yale that was like, oh, arrested the one, for yeah. sleeping in her own dorm room. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. There's just, uh, there, the there's a guy no who was moving in and he, <laughs> got, <laughs> he had the police, like they thought it was a burglary. Yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, all right. Yeah. So, I mean, so yeah. it, it, to answer your
1: question, in the, in the last chapter of that book, the emphasis in that last chapter, although it does focus on feedback and effect size, and mm-hmm. it gives some examples of how to do it with something like um, a lab report where you're right. typically qualitative, mm-hmm. how to convert it to quantitative, and then to... The, the major <clears throat> take-home for that last chapter is this. Everything we do in our classrooms, we should end the day by saying, did that work?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what evidence do I have that it did? And what evidence tells me that it didn't? And what am I gonna do differently? That's the know thy impact thing. Mm-hmm. You don't end the day and go, that's good teaching, boys. No. <laughs> you end the day by saying, I did this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. I checked their understanding using formative evaluation throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Did my decisions about yeah. teaching result in learning? If the answer is yes, keep moving. If the answer is no, now you get to talk about what am I gonna Where do, do differently? Go next? Yep. Yeah. Where do we go next?
0: Yeah. Um, we are getting close to time, so Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that, um, we run through one more question and then I want to just turn it over to you to see if there's anything you wanted to cover that we didn't. Um, but you know, my experience the last couple of years has been as an instructional coach. And so I'm thinking, you know, when we came out as a group of coaches, we paired up with teachers to, um, to your session in October and then you did the, the video, uh, chat, um, I know I'm going to be doing a book study with this mm-hmm. next year. It's been for all the other ones, so I'm, I know this is going to happen. But, like, when it comes to somebody who's trying to coach teachers and work alongside them to support them in uh, integrating some of the visible learning uh, ideas, what what kind of suggestions might you have? Yeah. The first, and you've heard me say this
1: before, and mm-hmm. so in some ways it's a broken record, but the value is it's, it would be hard to overemphasize this. Mm-hmm. The starting point is is to go figure out what the students are doing.
0: As a coach, you mean? Absolutely. As, okay.
1: I'm not going to go when I do classroom walkthroughs, and I do lots of classroom walkthroughs. It's right. my favorite thing to do. I, I don't. I do watch the teacher, but that's not my primary. I go in and I talk to learners, and I ask mm-hmm. them three questions: What are you learning today? Mm-hmm. And I watch their answer. Why are you learning it? And how do you know you're successful? The first place to start is the answer to those questions. Mm -hmm. Can they answer them? Today we're learning about amphibians so that I can explain their differences with reptiles. Mm -hmm. I'll know I have it when. If they can articulate all of that, then you have teacher clarity.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So that's box check number one. That's one check, right. If they can't answer it, that's the focus. How do we as teachers make learning visible in our classrooms how do we make sure every day our learners can answer those three questions they know what they're learning they know why they're learning it and they know what success looks like and so as a coach my first stop is always and would always be interviewing learners very quickly it takes a couple of seconds for each student Mm -hmm. get a sampling and find out in that teacher's classroom do they know those three questions Mm -hmm. if not that's where you start learning intentions success criteria learning progressions from there the next stop is, if they can answer those three questions, then let's make sure there's alignment mm-hmm. in what success looks like and the approaches I'm choosing.
0: And you, when you say approaches, you mean like the strategies? Absolutely.
1: Okay. So if, if I need them to explain, then my learning strategies and learning approaches ought to encourage them and give them lots of chances to practice doing what? Explaining. Mm-hmm. So I think it's that, and, and, and it follows... The, somewhat follows the progression of the book and and, yeah. and we're working now we're working on how to support this work with professional learning communities Okay. Um, actually I have a conversation later on today to about that exact topic oh, Okay. but your first stop go interview kids mm-hmm. go interview learners and if they can't answer those three questions that's your starting point Okay. because if they can't answer those three questions the rest of it is it's not going to work down. if the yeah. learner isn't aware if it's not visible to the student mm-hmm It's not going to stick.
0: They're just going to go through the motions. Mm -hmm. And then you can build up from there. So from that, like I think, um, you know, like you're talking about the appropriate strategies and things like that. I know, you know, there can sometimes be a complete awareness of what they're doing in class and how they're going to do it, but then it may not connect with like the big picture. That's right. You know,
1: and you can have an amazing success criteria Mm -hmm. and then pick the wrong strategy. That's a cool conversation to have with a teacher because it means the teacher's almost there. Right. You know, your success criteria says compare and contrast, but you had them do a sorting task. So as a coach, my job is to say, whoa, compare and contrast, sort, what could we have done differently here to make sure they compare and contrast? Bring
0: that. That's a great, that's a
1: fun conversation. Yeah. Because now we're back to repertoire and matching. Mm -hmm. How do you match the tricks you have in your bag Mm -hmm. with the success criteria you want your students to to know, understand, and be able to do at the end of that class, right? But the start, absolutely, initial start would huh. be the three questions.
0: Yeah, that's no, a. Uh, it's almost like you know. I think that the layout of this book, and well, actually, all three of them, they kind of go through the you know the surface, the deep, and the transfer, yep. and, and that's kind of the general organization. But um, I think in the math one was when you guys introduced the solo taxonomy, Yeah. and um, I mean that follows along Isn't that with it, cool? is that cool yeah I, I went back and I actually looked for the original text and I read yeah? through it um, and it was, it was did you buy it because it's out of print it cost a fortune you know what I did I bought it I didn't buy it <laughs> I went and got it ILL through UVA because yep. <laughs> I was like I'm like I can't I can't I, I, had, I had to own it um, yeah. on the well, off chance. Well, I mean, you're going to work with it more often than, than I will. I mean, well, <laughs> I've, I read it to get familiar with it, but I yeah. I wanted to see their original research mm-hmm. because
1: anybody that comes out and absolutely slams blooms mm-hmm. is going to have my attention. Right. <laughs> I love them from the start. I'm listening. Right? right yeah. yeah. Like, all right, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite brave. So yeah. I bought the original book to actually see their studies. I mm-hmm. wanted to know what research do you claim you have that Blooms doesn't. Well, the guy that did it, he was a psychologist, right? Correct. Isn't that correct? Biggs okay. and Collis, yep. Yeah. And, and when I read it, I got to see their research, their data analysis. Now, it was a heavy read. It was, yeah. Um, but I closed it and I went, got it. And then I went and looked at Blooms and lo and behold, there isn't any research.
0: Mm-hmm. I was yeah, shocked. I'd heard that. I'd heard that.
1: And so there there. That work, the, the solo taxonomy and plus I carry that 1980 book around because on the off chance that I ever intersect with Biggs, Collis, I think, is passed. Okay. But Biggs is still alive. I, I need him to sign it because he's getting up there in age. He's, he's a wise saint. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. Um, but that, that revolutionized the way I thought about my classroom.
0: Okay. Because so you, how long have you been up. working with the solo piece?
1: Um, about five years. Okay. The first time I read it um, was with um, Hattie's work. Okay. And I went, what's he talking about? Yeah. And then Gotta I did what I do, yeah. and I, I looked it up and was yeah. like, this is amazing. Pam okay. Hook.
0: So um, when you were talking about it, you, you used it in your college classroom? Absolutely. I, I was thinking you meant when you were. Uh, okay. No, I grew been. up on Blooms. Yeah, I used no, Blooms. No. Yeah, well, it was <laughs> brought up just about every year. Yeah, so so. I,
1: I, and, and I don't, I'm not a Blooms hater. I just think Blooms um, has been misapplied. Blooms was designed for assessment, mm-hmm. not for thinking. Right, right. And so that's the biggest mistake. Mm-hmm. We should not use Blooms for thinking. We mm-hmm. should use Solo or Depth of Knowledge mm-hmm. aligns with the Solo. Right. Um, but Blooms is an assessment tool. Okay. Is, is the differentiation I want to make.
0: Yeah. No, I think, I think that makes sense the way. It's you know, not popular. Yeah, it's not popular now. But, I mean, it, it is also something that's still used Yeah, all over. All over. So um, – so is there something else that you'd want to add to the conversation that I haven't touched on?
1: I would say um, it's easy in conversations like this and books like that. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: like your book? You're pointing at it. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah the, the, the science <laughs> yeah.
1: book. Um, to do what we've done. It's, mm-hmm. it's, I think the topics in there, not because of anything... We did, but by very nature, those topics are fascinating to talk about. Mm-hmm. They're they're batted around teachers' lounges mm-hmm. um, when we're not talking about field trips and and graduations. Right, right? All the other stuff. Um, they, they tend to spur um, emotion, and so they're fun to bat around. And so mm-hmm. it can often cause us to get lost in the weeds. So mm-hmm. we spend two hours talking about effect size and grading, and we miss the whole point of the idea behind the idea, and that is. The visible learning work focuses on the idea that there are things that give us um, major outcomes in learning Mm -hmm. that exceed the expected growth of one year. And if we're ever going to close achievement gaps, if we're ever going to make up any ground, and by the way, it is a civil right for a student to expect to make one year's worth of growth with one year's worth of schooling. Mm -hmm. Now, if they're starting out in pre-primer in third grade, one year's worth of growth is going to look very different than one year's worth of growth for a third grader who started out third grade on a fourth grade reading level. Right. So understand what I mean when I say one year's worth of growth may look different, but you should still expect to grow one year if you go to school for one right. year. But
0: the time in. Right. And
1: so the visible learning framework and what we talk about in the science book is how to do that in a purposeful, intentional, and deliberate way. And it has to do with these big ideas. Number one, we cannot value any strategy, approach, or idea over the learning process.
0: I, th- I And that was one that I know I was talking with a couple other coaches, that idea of not valuing one, like giving this one, well, we really like this one. Yep. Right? Is That's been really helpful for us as coaches to kind of be like, listen, no, this one might not work here. Right. Yeah. Um,
1: and that and science falls victim to that. Mm-hmm. Well, we teach science using inquiry. Why?
0: Mm-hmm
1: direct instruction works better than inquiry Mm -hmm. in science yeah well we're doing a problem-based learning curriculum why
0: Mm -hmm.
1: problem-based learning works for certain situations but is an a horrible failure in others Mm -hmm. you can't value venn diagrams over note-taking just because venn diagrams your favorite and he's a long-lost cousin and so number one is you don't value, don't value the approach over student learning. And number two, you have to make learning visible to everyone around. What are we learning? Why are we learning? And how do I know I'm successful? Those two things, if you don't have them in place, oh, boy. Right, right. You're back to spaghetti on the wall. And at a time in our world and society where science literacy is essential, we need them to get more than one year's worth of growth.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, science is definitely a, a difficult place right now. Yeah. so
1: We'll figure it out. Yeah. Great. Once we put somebody on Mars. <laughs> or even just, you know,
0: the moon. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, we did that, didn't we? Yeah. We just haven't mm-hmm. gone back. No, we haven't gone back. <laughs> yeah. The real estate yeah. wasn't good enough. didn't work as a tax break, so we just we <laughs> gave up on that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, how did we do? Are we good? Is this fun? Yeah, this is fun. Okay, good. Yeah. Have you done
1: one of these before? Um, over the phone.
0: Okay, I was um, going to say I hadn't, had you know, We are seen teachers. Oh, okay, yeah. The Arizona yeah.
1: podcast, and that was okay. over. I was sitting in Georgia.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, I'm. I appreciate you coming out. It's and it's, my pleasure. Yeah, it's been good, and yeah. it was good to catch up. I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's <laughs> it's a small world, but then it it's is. not. It is. I know. <laughs> right. It's it's weird. Yeah. So, uh, well, thanks oh, again, man. Hey,
1: thank you. Yeah.
0: Well, that was it. Uh, thanks again to John for uh, coming out uh, to talk with me. I really had a good time, and uh, I'm looking forward to the uh, upcoming work that he's uh, got lined up with uh, the Visible Learning Crew. You can also check out John online. He's got a website, John com. Um, and there are additional things there like videos. Um, he's also got a workshop schedule up there as far as, uh, what's coming up for this summer. I do have a couple things that are, that are coming down the pike that, uh, that I'm excited about, but I don't have any firm dates yet. Um, especially, uh, on one thing that's uh, pretty huge. So, um, I will either update everybody through the blog or, uh, in the next episode, so, I appreciate it. Please don't forget to uh, visit us on theadnarrative.com. And if you'd like to follow me via Twitter, it's TheAdNarrative. And Narrative. And uh, you'll be able to get updates, uh, links to things, etc. So, uh, thanks for listening. I'll uh, catch you later. Bye.